Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we all share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a great session for you in this week's episode, so let's jump right in. Are you looking for the best resources to help you build a regenerative lifestyle? New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. They publish good news and solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they may change the world for the better. Their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They care deeply not only about what they publish, but also how they do business. They believe in the authors that they take on and the works that they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society Publishers has the books you need to help build a better world. Buy your print and ebooks online at www.newsociety.com or at fine bookstores near you. Have you been researching and learning about regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building for a while, but are still a bit unsure of where to start? Are you new to these topics and feeling overwhelmed about the sheer scope of information and knowledge that's out there to be absorbed? Are you a seasoned professional in the field looking to expand your experience and expertise with other professionals who are pushing the boundaries of regenerative projects? Well, you're in luck. Here at Abundant Edge, we have just what you need to take the next essential steps towards putting the information from these podcasts, interviews, books, and articles into action. We offer courses for beginners, intermediates, and even seasoned professionals to learn from successful regenerative business owners, farmers, builders, and other artisans who are keen to share their knowledge. Our teachers and facilitators have been working and experimenting tirelessly to provide the most up-to-date information available to help you put your skills and efforts to use in regenerating the planet and transforming the global economy into one that abandons the outdated model of consumption and destruction into one of health, stewardship, cooperation, and abundance. Come and get your hands dirty. You can get a full list of courses and trainings as well as volunteer opportunities now at AbundantEdge.com. We're looking forward to seeing you here. Animals and livestock can be an essential component to land restoration and adding fertility to your farmer garden if managed correctly. And while we already have goats, chickens, and ducks on our small demonstration farm here in Guatemala, I've been looking into the addition of another animal enterprise that would fit into our existing systems without overwhelming the small space that we have. And for a while, I've been interested in rabbits for their fast reproduction, amazingly fertile manure, and their delicious lean meat. And that's when I came across a book called Raising Rabbits for Meat by Eric and Colleen Rapp and published by my good friends and supporters at New Society Publishers. Now, immediately I wanted to reach out to Eric and Colleen because of the abundance of well-explained and practical knowledge from their experience raising heritage breeds of rabbits for both genetic conservation and high-quality protein. So in this interview, Eric and Colleen share their wealth of knowledge in running a profitable rabbitry and walk us through the process of how they got started, general care and maintenance, breeding, harvesting, and much more. So be sure to stay tuned until the end when we talk about some of their delicious rabbit recipes that they also include in the book. Now before I give everything away, I'll hand things over to Eric and Colleen. Hey Colleen and Eric, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. How are you both doing? We're both doing great. Thank you for having us. 
Hey, it's my pleasure. I've really enjoyed getting through your book, Raising Rabbits for Meat, and I've got a ton of questions that I think will be really valuable to our listeners who haven't maybe considered this as a livestock option, especially in small spaces. So what do you say we just jump right on in? Sounds good. All right, so let's start at the beginning. What first got you two interested in raising rabbits? Because I know only later did you actually start harvesting them for meat. Right. Well, um, what started it was on the news about the 8 million food recall of that particular year. And we both were just like, we're tired of this. We need to take a little bit more control over what we're eating. And Eric, and I'll let him fill you in on his history with rabbits, but he had raised rabbits before. Um, It was a completely new thing to me. So that was pretty much what kind of started it. We started with just a handful of rabbits. We were only going to just harvest a few for ourselves. And, you know, it kind of exploded from there. And for you, Eric? She pretty much summed it (laughs) up. uh, I'd been around rabbits since I was pretty much big enough to to carry a feed bucket, so it was something we knew plenty about, uh, we wanted to do, that uh, needed some conservation work, and that was really our uh, one of our main goals if we were going to do this, uh, work with an uh, animal that needed conservation work, and a lot of these breeds I'd raised with my granddad when I was a kid, and uh, some of them were almost to the point of extinction, so uh, that was some of the main goals there, and one thing led to another, and interest kind of got back into the meat side of restaurants uh, wanting to put it back on their menus but really didn't have the animal that worked best for their uh, profit margin. So uh, in order to accomplish the breed conservation, you have a lot of animals that need to be culled that shouldn't be breeding stock. So you have to find somebody other than friends and relatives to uh, get them to eat your extra harvested animals so that's what kind of led to this it becoming the size it is today and so why did you choose the heritage the heritage breeds that you are now trying to preserve what was your criteria well we have been involved with the livestock conservancy for many years um and the breeds that we chose were ones that um, eventually went on to be on their conservation priority list that were so so few in number, they were literally on the verge of extinction. So um, a lot of what's our conservation work has kind of been an ongoing thing and rabbits just kind of were like the next phase of that. Um, We also chose breeds that were unique to North America The three main breeds that we have worked with were developed in the United States and were tremendously popular in the 20s and 30s, which was when rabbit was really in its heyday. And so that's kind of how we came to uh, work with that particular set of breeds. And so let's switch to a little bit of a controversial topic within raising animals. Why did you decide to raise your rabbits in pens rather than let them roam around in pasture or forest? Because I know you have some very good economic reasons for this, as well as being able to sort of help to more closely monitor the health and nutrition. Right. Um, Basically, it would have been difficult to do what we did with the rabbits on any type of scale if we were pasture feeding. Um, Pasture feeding or natural or whatever you want to call it um, has 
has some pluses, but it's got some uh, pretty serious downsides. Anytime you put a rabbit or any animal on the ground and where it is, you know, on the same ground it's got to defecate on, you run the risk of parasite transmission. Anytime you expose them to birds that can fly over and defecate into the pen, there's a lot of uh, parasites like coccidia that can get transmitted that way. And also, um, I like my neighbors, but I don't like feeding their dogs. And predation is a real you know, problem with anything outside. You've got to have some pretty good predator control. Uh, because rabbits can't really defend themselves from a dog or a coyote or, you know, even a big bird of prey or anything like that. Um, domestic rabbits do very well in pens. They enjoy, I mean, they seem to enjoy the uh, the safety and the security, for want of a better better phrase. And we've not noticed over, you know, the hundreds of thousands of rabbits, any of them really having any um drawbacks or suffering from from the type of system we chose or we wouldn't have done it sure yeah it, like my very limited experience with rabbits was when i had a friend in oregon who would sometimes let their rabbits out into the garden to roam around and play and my goodness they are hard to catch after that even in a fairly <laughs> small space i can only imagine what the maintenance and harvesting would be like if you had to go out and physically catch them as well Right, and they are very much a burrowing animal. Um, so any you know enclosure you put them in, they're going to try to thwart your efforts by digging out and tunneling, and you know there's just, there's just a lot of drawbacks that we felt weren't weren't worth it. Now you've tried different designs for cages. How did you decide on the ones that you use now? And if you could give us a little of an idea on the advantages that this pen design has as well. Uh, pen design, a lot of times what people start out with is something made out of wood. And I always refer to rabbits as similar to beavers. They'll take the nicest wood structure you can build and probably demolish it within six months to a year. Um, and then there's only certain types of materials you can use. Um, the pen space, the depends on the size of animals you're going to use. Smaller animals don't require as much space. Uh, you can keep it a lot cleaner. You can keep uh, fly strike is something that's pretty uh, prominent in operations that don't keep a good environment underneath the pens, which means keeping the manure hauled out. Um, so we tried to make our pens as big as we can, but still be efficient. Um, and with the conservation work, we have to be able to keep the breed integrities and know who's parents and and that. So it, it uh, we ended up with about 400 pens to complete the projects we're doing with several different breeds. And uh, it's much easier to keep them clean. Uh, you'll keep down a lot of your parasite issues with pens. Uh, the pens that are a lot of them that are available now at farm supply stores are really made for uh, lop-eared rabbits yeah, and rabbits. small rabbits. A lot of them aren't much over 16 inches high. We we go 24 inches high, and that gives them uh, room to stand up and stretch and stuff in the pen. So um, they're just you, and you can spend as, as much as you want on a pen. I've seen really good pens made out of. Uh, 
recycled materials. It just you have to keep in mind that they do poop and pee a lot, so that material has to be handled. And so tell me a little bit about, since you're not using wood, what are the pens made out of? What are the general dimensions? And how does this sort of facilitate maintenance and um, better health for the rabbits? Well, the pens are all uh, made out of wire. We use half by inch for the floors. And then um, the one by two two for the sides and the top. And... The dimensions, you're going to have to tell me the dimensions because... Well, the dimensions are going to be uh, according to the size of rabbit you have. What The meat breeds that we use, we like to not go any further than about 36 inches wide, and all of them are 24 inches deep. Uh, buck pens can be a little smaller. Um, I like to do a, a 30 inch wide on them uh, when you take the doe to the buck. Uh, you don't want a gigantic pen for them to run around and, and uh, not get business taken care of. So um, there's all there's uh, vinyl coated wire, which is very expensive. A lot of people think that's uh, going to be much easier on the pads of the rabbit's feet. But what you end up with there, you spend a lot of money and they will chew that uh, completely up over a short period of time and then urine and manure gets in there and then it starts rusting and then you you'll have also an, an area for disease to, to get started um, there's kind of a misconception of uh, wire causing sore pads on a lot of rabbits um, that usually is starts with the structure of the rabbit is wrong to begin with if you watch them setting in their pens uh, rabbits that end up with sore pads will get that out of just about any type of flooring because they're setting on their back feet wrong and it's not flat so it's actually a structural issue uh, on a lot of those sore pads so um, you can build a rabbit pen out of about anything out of any of the materials you just have to keep the environment uh, you know the outside environment whether you're going to have uh, possibility of rain or snow blowing in or you know just uh you have to kind of go by your area on your design sometimes does that answer your question it does yeah and so for the size and the dimensions that you mentioned for the pens how many rabbits can you appropriately fit in there or is it just one rabbit per pen generally it's uh the pen for the doe and then her litter um so we, we don't, uh, the doe gets the whole pen by herself if she's just gestating and then, you know, we'll add the nest box in and that's when the bigger pen is nice because that gives her room to move around with that nest box and not be, you know, crowded against it. And also as the litter starts to grow, um, gives them a bit more room. Well, and the, the nest box is removed at, at about 17 to 21 days, depending on what the weather is doing. Uh, the quicker you can get them out of that nest box, the more uh, sanitary things are. Have a tendency for that to become a litter box. Uh, so you, in 17 to 21 days, you're going to have the, the nest box out. And five to six weeks, which is the normal period of when you want to get the babies weaned, because the doe's going to wean those babies on her own. Uh, a lot of people leave them in longer because they think the, the babies are getting bigger 
off the dough, but it's actually pulling that dough down. They're starting, they should be eating feed by then. So you're going to pull them out of the pen, split sex them into two more pens. Um, so you don't want to make your, your pens very big. And when we've done workshops here, a lot of people have made their pens really big and then they have a hard time they can't reach in catch the rabbits and especially if you're short like i am so um, <laughs> yeah he, he can reach into any corner of the pen but there's um i have little t-rex flipper arms so i i struggle <laughs> a little bit with that nice so yeah so obviously the comfort of the rabbit but also the ease and the efficiency of maintenance and harvesting is really important let's talk now about a uh, the nutrition, because I know that's essential for raising healthy livestock of any kind. Give me an idea of the feed that you recommend and some ways to tell if your rabbits are unhealthy or not growing correctly. The feed we use is made basically for us at a local co-op. It's a 17% pelleted ration. It is Milo-based. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't have corn in it or anything like that. Um, so it's also higher in fiber, which, um, high fiber is essential well, actually, for rabbit health. Actually it's got alfalfa in it too, yeah. alfalfa based. So alfalfa is another good, you know, food for rabbit cause it's high in protein and high in roughage. Um, so that keeps that digestive system working to its optimum. Um, as far as knowing whether you know, your diet is doing its job, one of the uh, handiest things that we recommend people do is get a scale. It doesn't have to be anything expensive, um, but if you check your rabbit's weights and see that they're you know growing steadily, you, that's a good indicator. And also, you know, if they if they look shiny, I mean, a, a healthy rabbit, just really, you know, shiny coat, bright eyes, they look active. Um, you, you can tell if they're listless and just kind of off um, that they're not feeling well. Well, and it'll, it'll all show, show in the production output of those animals. Um, we initially, in the beginning, we're not going to use a commercial feed. And um, I found a, a uh, actual ration mix out of a 1933 uh, rabbit handbook and basically went to co-op and got all the ingredients it was whole wheat it was a lot of whole grains and you uh, they had ground hay into it we bought a pto grinder mixer and started doing that well it, it became very hard to get small batches of grain from co-op because they would only open a bin up for 500 bushel and I only needed 50 pounds. And so there was a lot of things that um, really weren't conducive to pursuing that. And it was uh, time consuming, labor intensive. And, and when we did use it, what we found was the rabbits are very picky eaters. Very. They will, they went through the feeders and basically raked out the more ground stuff like the hay and things they didn't want to eat going after the whole grains. Well, we ended up with more feed on the floor. And if you put whole grains in with rabbit manure, which is one of the best fertilizers you can do, I had better crops than some of the farmers around here, which wasn't doing anything for us. But, and you also saw that the 
rabbits were some would do fairly well on it and some would just weren't gaining any weight their body was uh lengthening out but they weren't putting on any meat so as we got bigger and started going through at that time about a ton of feet a month um we decided to abandon that and get on a more uh, even plane and and when you would go in to harvest them all the pen all the rabbits in those pens would be ready to harvest because they would be all around the same weight versus up and down you know pound two pound differences between them and we also saw that same thing when we uh did the experiment with the the rabbits finished on pasture grass they all started out the same weights um we saw some of them did okay uh we had to add some oats to the program uh, to get a little more bloom on them. Um, so, and it took, instead of about 14, 12 to 14 weeks to get them to harvest, it was about 26 to 28 weeks, uh, when they were on grass. So, uh, the longer you have to hope that those animals don't die on you or something gets them or you on a grass program, you need to hope that you don't have a drought like what happens here a lot anymore and have to come up with some other type of feed source and a pelleted diet was initially designed in the beginning to make a balanced diet every time that animal takes a bite. Fantastic. Now, so my biggest question after reading the book, and this is just because I don't have experience uh, with breeding rotations, was figuring out, and it seemed like to me that was one of the more challenging aspects of the maintenance with rabbits. Could you explain the general rotation and timeline from breeding pairs to separation and sorting of baby kits all the way up to harvesting, specifically the way that you do it? Um. We're basically a, a closed herd, um, and why we do that is it keeps us from possibly bringing in any outside diseases from uh, other rabbitries. So everything that we use in our breeding program has been raised here, stays here until further notice. So um, depending on the breed, it's usually six, seven, eight months before you can breed them for the first time. So from birth to that period, you've got that time to uh, get them up to weight and condition to breed them. Chinchillas, uh, we've found over the years that uh, the eight-pound target window is perfect for them. Um, sex a lot of them will sexually mature in, in uh, you know, four to five months, but you don't want to breed them at then. And that's one of the reasons you have to split sex them. And if you would leave them in a group, there's going to be... Uh, possibility of brother-sister matings or uh, bucks within uh, a group fighting over competition, and that can get pretty ugly. So uh, at, at about eight months, you can get one into production, and as soon as you get her bred, it's uh, about 28 to 32 days you're going to have kits. And then if everything goes right, you're going to uh, take care of those kits for about five to six weeks if things are going right and then you're going to wean those rabbits and at that time um, we keep numbers on we've got data here that we need an intern to go through and uh, over the years of weights at different times and all kinds of, of numbers but you're going to get the weights of those kits the sex of those kits 
you're going to split them male female in two different pens and then um you at that time if you're we breed year round it's a bottom line and production need uh, most people will breed in spring and fall just so they don't have uh pregnant does in the extreme cold or the extreme heat and, and that so it depends on what program you want to go with but um We'll uh, get those does weaned, um, and then if they're in condition, they're ready to breed again if you want to uh, keep them in production. Um, and then you start over in 30 days or so, she's going to have another litter. So uh, those, those babies are over there. What you want to do with them uh, is get keep some weights on them, and at that time you want to start if you're uh, in a – operation that you want to keep replacements or sell breeding stock you're going to want to evaluate those rabbits between uh, the time you wean them and we harvest at a live weight around six pounds so between that time frame you want to get those animals evaluated and uh, get rid of the the worst and keep the best and so you're if you're going to do that you're going to need some more pens to keep those replacement animals uh, separate so that's how you kind of start getting into uh, a pair needs this many pens. Um, and then you can, you want to skip out, just let that dough rest or have two litters, then rest. It just depends on how many chores you want to do and how many animals you need. And so um, I've, I've worked with weaning the goats that we have on our farm here. What's the weaning process like for rabbits? Generally, it's... Um, what we do is at, when they're ready to be weaned, we'll just go ahead and take the dough out of the pen. That way we're not moving the litter, you know, fewer rabbits to handle. And also that's their environment. They know where the food and water and, and everything is there. So we leave the kits there, um, take the dough, either if she's going to be rebred or rested or something like that. Um, and so that's, that's pretty much how it works here. And some do some doves are waiting for you to wean the babies. That's the, true. Uh, Otos will they're they'll tell you when if you don't get their babies weaned, they're going to start chewing on them, and they just they they don't like having the babies on them very long. Huh. <laughs> I'm sure there are a lot of parents that could understand that too. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't um, with uh, weaning rabbits. I know when we've weaned goats, you'll get that phase where, you know, the babies will yell for mom and mom will yell back. Um, and the, the dough has to go through that process of drying up. It's not like that for rabbits. Um, they mostly don't seem to really care one way or the other. Um, and as long as the babies are eating food good, you don't see, you know, any post-weaning slump or anything like that. By weaning time, those, those babies, all they're concerned about is food and water. I mean, they're, they should have, the litter's doing well and your feed program's working. Um, weaning rabbits should happen like nothing. It just, the dough goes out and life goes on. I mean, uh, there's no... Uh, the doe doesn't get into depression or anything and not breed. Um, it's it's a very simple process. And about how many years of breeding can you hope out of a um, out of a very healthy selected animal specifically for breeding? 
Well, um, it depends on how hard you want to push that doe. If you're trying to get four or five litters a year out of her, um, three to four years is going to be a good productive span. If you are going for like, say, two or three, um, that can probably add another year or so to her productive life. Um, but they, they're an animal that has a very fast metabolism, a very fast turnover as far as, you know, but when the babies are born to when they can start breeding. So um, everything just seems to be kind of speeded up with them, you know, being able to have multiple litters. So, you know, four to five years, I would say. Well, would be, nutrition has a big role to play in that. If you keep a balanced diet, sometimes we have a tendency, it's human nature to a cheaper feed comes along or, or you know, somebody sells you some magic feed. Um, you want to get on it. We've been on this same feed since the beginning. Um, and it shows in the production of the, the animals and the animals that are in production, your adult ones, uh, you want to give them like a little, I use calf manna, which is a feed supplement. And I look at it as kind of a, a vitamin for them. You know, you're getting a good feed, but you're pulling a lot of extra things out of that animal. So um, there's things that you can do to keep them, you know, in top production, you know, an animal that's marginable, you're going to, she's probably going to skip litters on you, even though you, you get her bred, she's not going to set uh, a, a litter. And so um, you're, if you watch your animals and, you know, they're comfortable and, you know, we breeding year round, we've had animals in the extreme cold and extreme heat and it's, you know, a little bit of management stuff by the weather conditions, but we don't do anything different, you know, in their uh, feed situation. So everything's constant. All right. So let's talk a little bit about some of the numbers. Now, I know you've got a fairly large operation with a couple hundred of pens. What about for those people who are just looking to get started with possibly the minimal number uh, to start breeding, to start raising for meat, possibly even for conservation. How do you recommend that you get started, possibly uh, with as little as like two breeding pairs? Well, two breeding pairs is a really good start. Um, that way you don't have to go outside for additional breeding stock. Um, if you, A lot of people when they start will get a trio, which is just a buck and two does. But if you're wanting to keep replacements, then you're pretty much very quickly at a dead end because then you're breeding the father to his daughters. Um, so if you get a couple of pair, that gives you quite a few more options as far as that. Um, and other than that, I think you know, we, re we recommend people start small, um, especially if they've never done it before. A couple of pair is a great place to start. And then you can always expand from there. Um, with the heritage breed, breed conservation, because you're trying to conserve bloodlines and working with a, a little bit shallower genes pool, so to speak, um, you wind up, you'll have to keep more males than you ordinarily would. If you're just raising for meat, one rabbit, one buck can take care of probably 10 to 12 does. Um, but if you're trying to do bloodline and keeping replacements, you're going to have to have more bucks. I think I kind of went around it, but does that answer your question? No, yeah, definitely. And 
So with that start, what's the sort of infrastructure and kind of upfront costs and size that you're going to be needing with just those two breeding pairs off the bat? Um, well, you know, infrastructure, if you, if you're creative, you can do a lot, you know, with some repurposed materials and stuff. Um, you will need some sort of shelter for the rabbits. They can tolerate a pretty wide range of climate. They do much better with cold weather than they do with hot. So wherever you, you know, put that building, you're going to want to make sure it's get good ventilation if you have hot summers and conversely is protected from the worst of the elements in the winter. Um, but you'll need, you'll need a pen for each of your adult breeding stock. And then you're going to need two to four pins for each of those litters. So you can, you know, split sex them at, at weaning and then have a pin for replacements. So I think it winds up usually being about six pins for each breeding pair. That makes sense. And that's kind uh, of like one a- of the things to uh, keep in mind with uh, location for structures or whatever your project's going to be is um, a rabbit's body temperature is around 100 degrees. So I always look at the danger zone starting at about 80. And that, I mean, they'll do fine, but you need to make sure that you've got from that 80 to 100 degrees that. Do I have air movement? You know, uh, we use uh, misters on the outsides of the buildings here in the summer, but that doesn't work when the humidity's high. So um, usually the best thing I tell people is to get you a high-low thermometer and set it in the general area you want to put your structure. Shade will do you a, a tremendous amount of benefit, and if you don't have that, you'll want to use some type of insulation um, on between the animals and the roof whether it's wood or tin or or uh, bamboo or whatever you want to use there um, and you can also uh, make it where the uh, sides come off in the summer uh, you have to keep predators in mind when you uh, locate your final spot but um, the main the main thing is to kind of get a general idea what that environments at before you start building and what type of building you're going to have to put up which direction it faces i have a real good friend that raises chinchillas up in canada and they're in an open front uh structure and and he sent me some pictures the other day with snow all over and and he he does great with them it's just they're he's found the right spot and and picked the animals that do good there so you can do a lot of pre-work before you, you, you know, sometimes we have a tendency to get ahead of ourselves and, and start building the pins and everything and then go, oh, this isn't the right pins and oh, oh this isn't the right spot. So um, a high-low thermometer will do you a lot of good to find a location and also down the road to use that thermometer uh, to monitor what the temperatures are every day. I mean, that's, it's an everyday situation when you not just rabbits, but any animal, when they become under your control, they're dependent on you to make sure that their environment's where it needs to be. And the, and the noises around rabbits like everything to be consistent. Uh, we have radios playing in all of our barns. So um, when 
the noise is always the same. Sometimes they don't like my radio station, but uh, you know, you when you go in there, you you spook one rabbit and they all spook. So uh, you know, you don't want to think your rabbit area is real real nice spot, and then uh, here's a dog pen within 30 feet. So uh, take all that into consideration. Yeah, of course. There's so many aspects to the well-being of animals, and I think constant observation is the one uh, reliable form that I've found for for keeping an eye on on the livestock that we have as well. Now, let's switch gears just a little bit. Um, I'd like to talk about the market for rabbit products. Now, obviously, it'll be very different for where we are here in Guatemala, but are there profits on other things uh, from, you know, purebred rabbits for conservation, meat, and even things like pelts or even manure? Um, yes, there are. We have um, had a – the rabbit manure is basically gold as far as fertilizer. Um, we, Yeah, if you can keep weed seeds and things out of it. So that is definitely a market. We have a nursery uh, that comes out a couple times a year and gets a couple of trailer loads of manure. Um, we have a big pile of manure out behind the barns that we clean everything out and take uh, the manure there once or twice a week. Um, and so uh, we're able to sell that. Um, for the heritage breeds, breeding stock can be a good, a good uh, additional market. Um, the thing I would advise people is just to not consider every rabbit that's born, no matter what breed or how rare that breed might be, as potential breeding stock. Um, you want to select the best, and you definitely, if you're going to sell breeding stock, want to sell the best. Um, as far as pelts, I wish I could find a market for pelts. Um, I have a freezer full of beautiful pelts that I'm going to wind up tanning myself one of these days and then I'm just going to be kind of the crazy lady in the rabbit fur coat. Um, <laughs> but we, uh, we've we yet to really find a market that we could tap into for that. A lot of the pelts that do get sold are white because they're easy to dye and you know that um, while like the chinchilla pelts and silver fox and some of those others are beautiful they're they're just we haven't found that niche yet i mean it's probably out there we just haven't found it fair enough oh ears um yeah one other product we've uh, been able to is um we take the ears off of the pelt when it's harvested and those when dehydrated make great uh dog treats all natural um, dog treats and our dog loves them. She will, she'll do backflips for him and she's a lazy dog. <laughs> that's good to know. We only just got a new dog here as well. So maybe that's something that we can, uh, offer as a treat when we get our own rabbitry started. Now tell me a little bit more about the yeah, importance great. of maintaining a clean environment for the herd and what are some of the most important things to consider for giving them that comfort that will help them to grow and um, not only maintain weight but just be healthy in other aspects as well? Um, I think probably one of the main things is keeping the manure cleaned up. Um, the manure will draw flies um, you know, and rabbit uh, urine is pretty strong. Um, it's highly concentrated, got a lot of calcium and um, 
other things in it. So it's a pretty strong, um, can get fumey real easily. So I think keeping the manure out as much as possible, trying to keep it um, from being wet under the pins will help um, create that environment. Um, because it, you know, if you go into a building and you can smell a strong odor, those animals are living with that 24-7. Um, so I think air quality is a pretty big one. Um, that's another reason why we have you know, windows all the way around the barn so that we can take advantage of natural ventilation. And then um, all, while the wind does blow in Kansas probably 95% of the time, um, for that 5% where it actually is still, um, we've installed some fans to try to kind of help keep that air moving. So, I mean, I think, wouldn't you agree that air quality is probably one of the biggest biggest comfort things for them? Well, in the, the summertime, too, the um, rabbits kind of go in, when it's hot, they'll go into kind of a little zone. They'll stretch out pretty much best they can, and they radiate out their ears. And uh, I usually make sure that uh, in the summertime when it's hot that, chores are done by about 10 30 11 and that's when the, it starts to get hot and you're not going in there and stressing them so they'll they'll tell you if you keep an eye and it's not just rabbits if you keep an eye on your livestock they'll they're their best indicators of if things are going well uh, if the air quality's good their temperature's good their feed's good um, you're going to have good producing animals and and you'll profit from it instead of it being a liability and with the manure um it, it stays wet and it, it's we we take it out once a week um so it's uh, pretty imperative that you keep that manure out of there well fortunately it seems like there's so many good uses for it in the garden and for soil building as well so it can be treated easily as a resource now We've talked a lot about all the different types of maintenance and the things you need to be looking after with your rabbit herd. What are some of the most useful tools and equipment that you have that helps to reduce maintenance in the rabbitry as far as labor and time-saving methods? Well, the having the correct feeders, the correct waters, uh, our rabbits that are being finished out are on a gravity water system that basically runs out of a reservoir and then gravity flows down uh, tubing to a rabbit nipple um, that keeps the water in front of them uh, pretty much all the time. Uh, that, that works up until your weather gets to where it's freezing, but if you are watching your, your rabbits or any animal fairly close, you'll know about how much water they'll consume. So I'm still running our gravity water flow system now, and we've had freezing temperatures, but I know exactly how much water to put in that tank so it's completely drained out by the morning. So, uh, and if you use equipment that doesn't take up pen space, uh, will give you more room for your animals. A lot of times uh, people put feed containers inside the pens, uh, water bowls, uh, things like that, and those become contaminated, dumped. Um, so feeders on the outside of the pens. Uh, there's all types of uh, quart water bottles with nipples on them. Um, I like to use those on 
production animals, does and, and bucks. That way I can make sure that they're consuming uh, water, they're a clear jar. Um, the drawback with a reservoir system is a lot of times people become complacent with that. They fill the tank up and it's like any other water system, it can plug up. Uh, and they think just because the tank has water in it, everybody's getting water. So it, you still need to visit every pen and touch that nipple to make sure it's it's running water because if they don't eat, they don't drink. So um, that can be a, a very useful tool, but it can also be a crutch that you can go off and think, well, they, I put water in the tank and they, got, they have water when actually half of them may not. So... Mm. Um, and, and you can spend, you know, any amount of money you want to on the quality of the, there are different qualities of wire. Uh, there's some, a baby saver wire that you can use on your, uh, pens with does in them that the, the bottom two inches of the side wire has the same half by one inch wire. So if babies happen to get out of the nest box at birth, they don't, uh, wiggle through and end up on the floor. Um, so it's, it's just best thing to do is sit down and figure out what your plan is and, and, uh, start out very small. And a lot of times it, it may be with, uh, local rabbits, you can get to learn what you're doing because if you get into heritage breeds in the beginning with no rabbit experience, they're going to cost more and they're going to be harder to find. And if you make a mistake or, you know, not by on purpose or anything, but, um, you're not going to be out a bunch of work and a bunch of money. So, um, and there's misters that can, you know, the same thing that you, you get to put on your deck, um, that doesn't consume a lot of water. Um, I usually take out every other, uh, orifice on it. So it's not, uh, missed as much. And you can also, uh, on one building next to our garden, we have uh, the misters actually misting some plants plus cooling the barn. So if you kind of double think things, you can utilize one piece of equipment for two projects. Nice. Yeah, that's clever. Now, let's take some time to talk about maybe the best part after the harvest. I love the chapter on how to cook and prepare rabbit meat. Uh, this is probably the thing that a lot of people are least familiar with because, like you said, rabbits are just not as popular for meat as they used to be uh, earlier in the previous century. Could you describe some of your favorite dishes? Because I've cooked a lot of different types of food and I just haven't yet had the chance to cook with rabbit, though I, would I do really like to eat it. Um, what are some of your favorite things that you know will get people motivated to give this a try? Well, one of the, um, let me back up a second. The, the thing that most people need to keep in mind when cooking rabbit is it is very lean. There is no intramuscular fat or marbling or anything like that. So, um, there, yeah, there's barely any external fat. So you've got to use a cooking method that's going to allow that rabbit to cook at a lower temperature and um, stay moist. So, one way that we cook rabbit a lot of times is I've got a old cast iron Dutch oven and we can put a rabbit in that, put it in the oven at about 200 degrees. Um, it stays nice and moist, cooks 
pretty evenly all the way through and um, is pretty delicious. You know, you can put all sorts of seasoning, peppers, anything like that. Um, but one of the favorite ways is we've got a grill that has a rotisserie attachment on it. And so what Eric will do is take some zesty Italian dressing and some butter, melted butter, mix that together and use that to um, baste the rabbit. And he'll also, we've got one of those injection kits where you can like inject the marinade into the meat. So use that, put it on the rotisserie, um, and honestly, half the time, the rabbit doesn't make it into the house because we'll just sit outside and eat it like a <laughs> pair of carnivores. Nice. Um, but it's real tender um, and super delicious. And then what was the other way? You, you smoking them is also, um, That's good I like to basically butterfly them, not split them in half, but cut them so you can butterfly them and then hang them in a smoker. And you can use various woods that, you know, to add a little flavor, but smoking uh, works pretty good. You can pretty much, anything you can do with a chicken recipe, you can do with rabbit. Uh, but the main thing is that uh, there's no, that skin's not there like on a chicken, so you don't have that room for air when you uh, get the heat too high. So it's slow and flavor it however you you know just kind of experiment with it we do rabbit stir fry rabbit chili um you know you can uh debone one of those down and make unbelievable amount of meals but the chefs we've worked with over the years have uh we have one that um he's our biggest customer and about the time I think he's run out of rabbit recipes, he comes up with something else. And we've been with him 10 years. Ten years. And uh, the last one I think that really got me was the rabbit and uh, banana leaves. Um, so it's the creativity is, is out there. It's just that you have to get people over that initial shock that, oh, rabbit. But after they, they've tasted it, uh, you know, smoked loins, mm -hmm. it's just. I'm hungry now. Yeah, I was just going <laughs> to say that. I'm hungry now. <laughs> yeah, that all sounds fantastic. Uh, we've got a lot of banana leaves around here, and it's a pretty common way for people to cook uh, tamales and other traditional dishes. I'm sure the addition of rabbit meat um, as a replacement for maybe chicken or others would be fantastic in that. And frankly, the, the recipe that first got me interested in eating rabbit, I was in Morocco, and they had it in a traditional tagine, the, um, one of the more traditional meals from Morocco. And, uh, I mean, it was like a half rabbit <laughs> complete with skeleton and all. And there were a lot wow. of squeamish people around. They were like, oh, my goodness, what is that? But it was fantastic. And, and since then, I've been interested in integrating it more into our diet. Yeah, but it's, it's a wonderful meat. It's high in protein. It's so lean, uh, easily digestible. It's, I mean, it, it's fantastic. Nice. So before I let you go, could you both give us uh, a way for people to contact you and how they can find the book to get the rest of the information? Because there are so many great visual aids in there to help clarify some of the instructions and ways of checking in on rabbits. I really found this a, a fantastic resource. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, the best way to get a copy of the book is through the New Society Publishers website. Um, they have it 
available there. And as far as contacting us, um, we we were fairly active on Facebook. Um, the Rare Hair Barn is our Facebook page, and an email address is rarehairbarn at gmail dot com. Um, but uh, be patient with email. Sometimes it takes me a couple of days. Um, life comes at you fast, but I will get back to you at some point. Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time today. This was a very informative interview, and I got a lot out of it. And that was after reading the book, so I'm sure the listeners will as well. So y'all take care, and hopefully we can do a a follow-up sometime too, especially as we start to install our own rabbitry here on the farm in a later season. That would be great. I'd love to do that. All right. Thanks so much, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops that we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we all share. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com or you can post your questions directly to the Abundant Edge podcast Facebook page to which there's a link in the show notes of this episode. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you again in next week's session.